Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Tech Strong Women, where we feature amazing women doing amazing things in tech. I'm Jody Ashley, executive producer here at TechStrong, and I'm here with my co-host, Tracy Reagan, CEO of Deploy Hub and member of a bunch of boards at the Linux Foundation. <laughs> Before I introduce today's guests, I want to give you a quick update about what's happening here at TechStrong TV. Yes, it is almost 2023, so be sure to mark your calendar for our annual Predict a Virtual event on January 12th, where industry leaders and visionaries will speculate about what the future looks like and lay out a roadmap to success for 2023. Speaker submissions are still open, so go out there and check it out and share your predictions for 2023. And remember, you can register for all of our events by going to techstrongevents.com and be sure to tune in to every day to techstrong.tv for great shows and interviews. Okay, Trace, what's on your mind today? <laughs> so, you know, we, um, I, I continually look at the labor market in terms of um, the software development uh, puzzle that we're in. And Nora, I'm sure you, you can pitch in on this one. Um, we, it's hard to find developers. It's really a tough uh, road to find software developers. So I'm becoming more and more fascinated with Microsoft's uh, new open source project called Copilot. Copilot is basically um, Grammarly for coders, uh, which means that you don't necessarily have to know every all the syntax, just like in Grammarly. Thank God for Grammarly, because I do terrible at spelling and, gram and uh, punctuation. I'm totally with you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it saves me every day. <laughs> Copilot is uh, basically generating snippets of code based on what they believe, what it believes that you're trying to write. Wow. Now, why this is going to be interesting is because it's going to, if it, if it really takes off, which I have a suspicion it will, it's going to open up more what I like to call new collar workers, a term I heard from the DevOps Institute. Uh, and I believe that we are going to see more women moving into uh, software development as new collar workers. Uh, so Copilot is something we should start watching. Um, and then from, of course, from in my brain, I start thinking about the software supply chain. And if a tool like Copilot was out there, maybe we wouldn't, maybe we would have more of a central code base of open source functions. Uh, and we can start doing a better job of managing the supply chain and the security around it. So it has a lot of implications, but most in the area of bringing new people into this field. Now, that means new people are going to come in at entry-level jobs as programmers, but we still have many, many jobs at the higher levels, at the higher pay levels, like operations, like DevOps, like chaos engineering, which I hope we talk about today. So I think that uh, we all should be watching uh, the Copilot project. It is an open source project and uh, start looking at seeing how it's going to change our industry, because I believe it will have a pretty big, uh, it'll, it'll disrupt us. It'll disrupt the entry level positions for software development. You know, if you spend four years in college, maybe you won't be spending four years in college to learn to code. Maybe we can get more people spending four years in college learning to be DevOps engineers instead. <laughs> so some of these lower, I hate to call them lower level, but some programming is the entry level uh, position. And I believe it's going to really open the door for, to a lot of people. Well, that's so cool. Thanks, Trace. Um, great. Well, let's, let's get going here. I would love to introduce everyone to our guest today, Nora Jones, uh, founder and CEO of Jelly. And... Fellow Coloradan, just gonna say that. 
<laughs> Nora, thanks for being here. <laughs> thanks so much for having me. Tell us, tell us about yourself. Tell us what you're doing at Jelly. Sure. Yeah. So Jelly uh, is an incident analysis company, but we really cover the entire incident platform from, you know, coordinating uh, yourselves in an incident to learning the most you can from it afterwards to seeing patterns across your incident and your organization that serve as a way to help you do better in your organization from leveraging incidents to understand your budgets better, to understand your headcount better, to understand your roadmap um, estimates better, to understand build versus buy better. Um, It can be a really nice avenue to discover all of that. And I think as an industry, we've been leaving a lot of data on the table. And I think we can use incidents to pontificate a little bit less about what we should be doing next in our organizations and the industry, and we can use them to inform us more. So we're really trying to make that easy and accessible for people to learn what they can from them. And um, Tracy, I really liked what you were saying about uh, Copilot earlier. And what I like about it, I, you know, and this seems silly, but I actually really like the name. You know, I think even the name itself, it's like, hey, we're not steering the plane for you and we're not doing all of this for you, but we are enabling you. And that is what I feel like the future of dev tools should be like. I It bothers me seeing tools in the industry that are like, we will just replace this for you and think for you and you don't have to think about these things. And I just, I think that's a miss. Like ultimately humans and machines should work together and help each other. And so um, that's really kind of what we're trying to do at Jelly too is like, um, supplement the human being that's doing a lot of this, that's busy, that has a lot going on. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what jelly is. And, you know, you point out something that I talk about often is that we are, you know, I guess the shoemaker's uh, children never has shoes. (laughs) (laughs) And when it comes to data, Uh we, as when I say we, I want to say we as a DevOps community from, You know, from the, the the entire software life cycle, all the way from you know birth to to production and incident, we leave a lot of data lay, laying on drives in places. Uh, I mean, DevOps intelligence has been ignored, and it is what can define us and how we can improve. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing that we don't do as much as we should with the data. And when I was looking at Jelly, it was like, yay, somebody's looking at data and making really good decisions on data, because that's yeah. where the machine learning will come from. And it doesn't have to be artificial intelligence. It just has to be pattern matching, understanding the problems we're running into. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about what I, you know, I discovered chaos engineering last year. I may be a little late to the game, but, it, you know, I, it's not my area. And I was fascinated by it. Yeah. Please talk to us about chaos engineering, kind of how it really got started in your world and how it's impacted your decisions around Jelly. Yeah. So just to give a quick definition, chaos engineering is the idea of purposefully injecting turbulent conditions in production um, with you know, a mitigated blast radius just to see how your system reacts. And by system here, I mean people, I mean technologies, I mean potential customers and just being able to contain it in a small environment so that you can learn from it before you have a catastrophic incident that hits the news, impacts revenue in in bad ways. Um, So I started learning about it back in 2015 um, and it really wasn't a thing. I, um, I had joined a startup called jet.com 
And at that time, they had the highest Google AdWords spend in all of the world. Uh, and so we were getting a lot of traffic to our website. And yet we also didn't have SREs. We had like a DevOps team at the time, but our website was going down a lot. Um, so much that we were having um, incident review meetings every morning, like as our standup. Uh, and so... Um, my SVP at the time, they hired me to be kind of an internal tools and productivity engineer. I was really an SRE, but, um, we weren't really using that title at the time. And he was like, you can just kind of do whatever you want. Like we can just try things like, let's just try things and see what happens. And I found, um, Netflix was doing this thing called chaos monkey, where they would shut down a single node in an AWS cluster and make sure that, you know, it didn't take down everything and just to make sure we were resilient to a single node going down. And I just thought the practices behind some of it were interesting. We're just practicing like a very simple failure case. And so I wrote a tool while I was at jet.com to do that. Um, and I thought what I was doing was creating a tool, but really what I quickly realized was it was a big cultural change. Um, and so I sent out a lot of emails before I turned on this tool, like, hey, does anyone have any concerns? Do you want to opt your service out of this? And I got like basically zero responses. And so after a while of waiting, I eventually turned it on because I was like, okay, if it's not going to bother anyone, I'm just going to do it. And then I think I met like all of my coworkers that week because I had impacted a bunch of their services. We brought the entire QA environment down. It was, and I was like fairly new at the company too. And so it was a, it was a big learning experience for me, but I actually blogged about the entire thing experience. Like I was like, I'm thinking I'm making a tool right now, but really what we learned was how we reacted to those failures. And we were able to like meet each other. And like, I didn't, I luckily didn't break production. We broke QA, which did impact releases and impacted things in a big way. But I started learning a lot more about organizational psychology and as it relates to the technical aspects of what we're going through. And I don't feel like we're trained a lot on that as software engineers, but there is a, there's a lot of room for it. And um, I think it's a lot of what DevOps is too. So um, that was sort of how I got into it. And then um, Netflix saw my blog, invited me to come speak at their organization about some of the cultural aspects of things. And then I ended up working there. Um, what I learned while I was there was we had this really cool chaos tool that we had built. We had written academic white papers on it, like how we were able to successfully inject failure into production traffic without customers noticing, but in a way that we could learn from it. Like it was absolutely brilliant. And yet what surprised me when I got there was that very few people in the organization were using the platform. And I was like, well, we've built this brilliant technology, but what's the use of it if no one's using it? And so I started... Um, trying to figure out why no one was using it at the organization. And it turned out people were scared. They were naturally scared to inject failure in production. They weren't thinking about failure as much as I was in my job, right? Um, they were owning a service. They were owning a service that customers used and they had to get features out the door. And they weren't they didn't want to come to a UI that's asking them where they want to inject failure and how many customers they want to impact, like it scared them. And so they'd stop at that point during the process of creating the experiment. 
And I found sometimes that even just sitting down with them and talking about that fear and talking about what areas of their system keep them up at night generated almost as much ROI, even more sometimes than using the platform itself. And I found that most of that was based on previous incidents. And so that's how I started studying incidents. Like I actually wanted to drive more traffic to our chaos platform. And so I was going to look for patterns and like speak a language that they knew, you know, they had participated in incidents. And so, um, but I learned there was so much more data and in incidents other than just trying to drive traffic to my chaos platform. Like you could see things like teams that were underwater and maybe needed to hire more. You could see things like services that were critical and the amount of knowledge silos that actually knew how they worked. You could see teams in practice versus teams in theory, because when you're in an incident, all rules kind of go out the window and everyone's just trying to stop the bleeding. And there's a lot of data to be found in that, like you were saying, Tracy. So like my journey from chaos engineering kind of evolved into what I was doing today. Um, that was a very long-winded answer, but yeah. no, it's a fascinating answer. And it's an area that I find um, that we should be looking at and even a, at a, in a broader uh, perspective. Mm -hmm. And again, I think about our situation with open source security, we should yeah. be able to have an incident response for open source, right? We should be able to sneak something in and see how well we respond. Yeah, because it's yeah. always the case that we are caught with our pants down. You know, yeah. it, it, production incidents <laughs> always happen at Friday. It's, you know, it's at six o'clock. Yeah. Right. It's always the case or Sunday morning at 2 a.m. Mm -hmm. And nobody's at their best when it's 2 a.m. on Sunday morning or even six <laughs> o'clock on Friday. And so we don't respond that well. And understand, learning how to uh, respond to incidents regardless of what kind of incident it is, is I think more important than understanding the root cause analysis. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, but I think understanding your incidents and analyzing them is important to like inform how you respond to them. I think a lot of folks at times spend a lot more time trying to get a handle on their current incidents without <laughs> looking at a lot of the ones that they've already had. I think of that meme of like the girl and the boyfriend and he's like holding her hand and he's like looking back at that. There's like this whole wealth of incidents and knowledge that you already have that could inform and make those things that you're saying even, even better, Tracy. And that's where the data becomes important and the pattern matching. Yeah. Because we repeat our problems over and over and over. I've seen it so many times. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, but we do that because we're not, you know, taking the time to understand them sometimes too. So where it's cool that so somebody encouraged you. I mean, how fun is it to encourage you to create chaos? Like I learned, lear I've learned about that uh, obviously as part of my job. We've done some episodes on some other shows about it and it's super interesting. And I always find the people that do it have like a certain personality, like they're like, they're like you and they're like, this is really fun. And yeah, I caused, I caused some grief, but Hey, you know, and I, I've listened to um, my husband, who's a CTO and who's been in security for 30 yeah. plus years, say to his team, you're, we're gonna screw stuff up and yeah. we're going to learn because we, we fail and that's okay. We're trying to tell okay. certain personalities, you know, they're, they're like you said, the teams that didn't want to try it. Cause they're like, uh Oh, I don't want to screw anything up. Right. You know, yeah. Teach people that that's, that's actually helpful. Yeah. It's and you're normalizing that part of work. Um, totally. And I think there's a confidence level that comes with a individual who's 
willing to screw things up to know that they can fix it. Yeah. If you, if you don't, if you don't feel like you can fix it, you probably aren't so willing to, to uh, disrupt it. Yeah. And a lot of that, you know, is outside the individual too. It's like the system, does the system allow for things to be messed up? And if, you know, I think a lot of the time, the questions we need to ask after incidents was, is how did it make sense or how was it possible for this person to do this thing? Um, Because I think you're absolutely right there. I think of the Uber security incident that happened recently and how a lot of the um, blame was kind of uh, placed on that one person when really like it could have maybe been focused on the system. Like how was it possible that this, you know, that this engineer did what they did um, and why did it make sense to them? Well, we haven't done a very good job in terms of a lot of the stuff that, and I know the incident, you're, you're the Uber problem that you're referring to, but if we look at the underlying um, infrastructure that we have, we are still pretty script-based, yeah. scripted everything, everything is scripted, and we haven't not done a good job of thinking about data and separating um, the data from the definition. Mm-hmm. And then being able to, to, to bring data into a, a central place and start understanding what we actually look like. <laughs> and I think that's what's interesting with what you're doing with Jelly. So tell us, how did you, uh, how did you come up with the idea? Give us a little bit of insight about your journey. How did you start Jelly? But, you know, did you just quit your job and say, I'm going to do this? <laughs> how did you do it? So the idea really started forming like when I was trying to drive more traffic to that chaos tool and I started looking at patterns and incidents. So I, I analyzed like how people talk to each other in Slack during incidents. And then I analyzed the people that were brought in and when they were brought in and what team they were on and what their tenure was at the organization. And if they were on call or off call and it was during their working hours. And then I aggregated all that information and it was just a gold mine of data, but it also took me forever to do it. And I was like, wow, I wish I had a tool that could help me do these things. Um, and so I started kind of hacking on it on the side um, while I was at Netflix. And then um, I didn't quite know if there was a market for it. And I started a community called Learning from Incidents and in Software. Um, I just wanted to talk about incidents and I wanted to see if anyone else was doing sort of this pattern analysis thing, like based on how people talk to each other and how organizations were supporting new employees versus tenured employees. And, you know, if we were able to get ahead of burnout things like that before it happened because it can ultimately support our system overall. And so um, I shot out a tweet and like, I was like, is anyone else thinking about stuff like this? And I got about 300 DMs in a night. And so I started a little Slack community. Yeah. And it was wild. And so, and it's been, it's existed since 2019 and we've done a lot of really cool stuff in the industry. We, we have people um, actually that are outside of the software industry sitting in it too. We have people from that do safety critical things in medicine that study incidents in aviation. Uh, and so we're kind of just bringing some of that thinking into the software industry as well. Um, and so I was working with that community for a while and I got offered a job at Slack, which, you know, Slack was about to IPO when a company has a lot of public media attention, they tend to, there tends to be like incidents tend to be heavier and there tend to be more incidents because there's more pressure. And so I thought it would be kind of an interesting time to join, but 
I think as you know, pretty quickly into being there, the the urge to start jelly full time, like really was, was pushing me. And I, it being there and seeing the community I had started growing, um, was be, helping me be like, wow, there really is a huge need for this in the industry. And I really just wanted to go build it. And so, um, I left Slack after about six months, actually. Um, we, we had a few incidents and it was a really like amazing time to work there and just see how folks work together in incidents with such a public facing company that was so widely used such as Slack and then um, started Jelly in August, 2019. Um, Yeah. So that's a story of service. I think that most people I talk to who have survived in um, a startup world, um, we tend to think about how we can be of service. Mm-hmm. You know, you, 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 you described, you know, just putting a tweet out there and seeing if there's anybody else who wanted to talk about it because you wanted to talk about it. You were you were you were offering a service. Yeah. Something that you knew you were suffering with. So is there anybody else suffering with this? <laughs> Am I, I the got, only one? You got instant validation. That was quite yes. the pile on of responses right away. Yeah, I mean, it was, but it took a couple years for the community to build in a way like I didn't want to I've seen so many startups that were just kind of like, I need to find a problem around my solution. And I really wanted to to make sure like I was actually building a solution around a a problem. And I I think you're absolutely right, Tracy. Like, I, I feel like that those are the best startups are the ones that are really trying to listen to what is alien people in the industry. I mean, I think with SREs and DevOps folks, we frequently burn out a lot more than other places. And we frequently don't get noticed in organizations unless there is an incident. But yet we're all working all the time to keep our systems up and running and giving our customers a good experience. But yet no one really, no one quite knows what we're doing like when there isn't an incident. And so it's like one of the things I really wanted to focus on with Jelly was to help these these folks tell their stories a little bit more and because they're carrying all this knowledge um but yet we're so kind of bogged down sometimes that we're not always the best storytellers and so um it's meant to give a, a place to share that knowledge and tell those stories too through data like you were saying i'm glad you mentioned the burnout you know uh, mental health is important in, in every industry but boy during covid yeah. I knew a lot of SREs who were seriously burnt out. Oh yeah. Like they were doing everything they could for th- with on some of these systems to keep it up and running in environments that they had never worked in before, like remote yeah. where they didn't have access to a lot of things, even though they needed them, they couldn't go back in the office. And the burnout factor was pretty intense for a lot of people in DevOps. I personally know three who um, just got out of it completely. Yeah, like I I can't do this. Are they still in the industry? They're in the industry, but they just got out of. uh, Two of them went back to uh, programming. One of them went into testing and said, "Yeah, you let somebody else chase down these problems because it's a lot." lot. SREs tend to have a lot of responsibility or or a lot of uh, of the blame and and none of the responsibility. So it's a, it's can be a really, really hard, hard position to be in. And like I say, during COVID, I could not, I talked to so many people on LinkedIn. They just wanted to talk. They were just like, I feel like I'm going crazy right now. All I'm doing is supporting problems. Yeah. So 
I, I, did, so did, were there, what, did you gather a lot of data during that time? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, we, so we had started jelly in August, 2019, and then we went into a global pandemic in March and, um, we had just kind of started cementing our product at that point in time. And so, but then, you know, just talking to folks in the industry, talking to folks in my community, it was like some systems were getting used more than ever. And the SRE's job was more important than ever and incidents mattered more than ever. And so it was just kind of also a renewed mission um, for Jelly too, just kind of going through all that and really wanting to provide that support. I mean, I spoke with some folks, um, I did a panel back in December, 2020 with folks from three different organizations whose systems just like quadrupled in traffic overnight. Like someone from a food right. delivery company. Um, I talked with someone from Netflix um, and I forget the, uh, the other person I spoke to, but there were a lot of systems that like just really changed traffic overnight in a way that people there's no way people could keep up with, right? You could have never predicted that situation. I think as SREs, sometimes we are expected to prepare for every situation that could possibly ever happen, but that takes like a lot of time and money. And I think there's a lot of um, coordination things that can be happening across the organization too. Like you brought up a good point about blame with no responsibility. And I think that is accurate and I think it can change. And so like, we're, we're really trying to help um, other parts of the organization understand what SREs and, and these kinds of folks do so that they can learn to work with them better. Like if marketing is having a huge launch, they should probably be coordinating with SRE like every step of the way, you know? Um. <laughs> That's so typical when one arm's not paying attention to what the uh, leg is up to. And yeah, until, until something bad happens. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it seems like with, with, the pandemic. I mean, it. That's what with TechStrong. I mean, all of a sudden, we went from an in-person organization to an online mm. online entity that we grew our company like three times the size that it was during that yeah. this last two years, and um, that's part of when I joined it. And yeah. it it was crazy to see just all the the struggles that everybody was having, having to deal with um, all the security, like suddenly everybody was on a laptop at their house. They weren't working on networks the same way. Yeah, exactly. Causing all this and still is to some degree. They, not, not everybody still figured out how, because they want to stay remote. A lot of companies have, are not bringing workers back and, and systems still have to operate safely. Yeah. These remote environments, it's just so, so much just hit all at once. Are, are your organizations remote? Yes, we are. Well, yeah. our, our, we, have, we do have an office in um, Boca Raton that about, oh, I don't know, half of our staff works at, but yeah. know, the rest of us are all remote around the country. So well, yeah. we, got, we got rid of our office. What about Jelly? We've been fully remote, but there were only four of us when the pandemic started. So my plan the whole time was to have a fully remote team, but I had also just signed a lease for an office, like uh, an office space with one of my coworkers that happened to live nearby me like a week before the pandemic. Luckily, I was able to get out of it. But And moving forward, you're planning on uh, keeping it uh, a remote company? Yeah. Yeah. I think we might, you know, we, we happen to have eight people that live in Portland. Like they, (laughs) uh, so I think they get together sometimes. Um, 
but I'm, you know, we do, we try to do a little mini in-person things where we can, but I think we'll stay remote. From an uh, investor perspective, how does an investor perceive that? That Do they still think we should have offices or do they, are they becoming a little more understanding of a, a remote culture? I mean, I raised money before the pandemic and uh, I had put in my deck that we were going to be a fully remote team. I think, I don't know. I think it really depends on the person and the people that you hire, I think. And we have to be very, I mean, I'm sure you all know this too. We have to be very cognizant when we hire, like, is this person going to be able to support themselves and ask for help when they need it? Because one thing I noticed in um, a friend of mine is an engineering manager, and he was really actually stressed when we all went into lockdown. I was talking to him about it. And he said, it's really hard for him to train junior employees now that are like just out of college. He was like, because I can't walk by their desk anymore and be like, Hey, what's, what's happening here. Cause I can like see what's on their screen. And he was like, they don't know when they're struggling. And so then, you know, it's, it, it involves different management techniques too. Um, we're, we're not hiring like right out of college employees right now, but that's something I consider as, you know, we think about, growing our remote work is, is how would we be able to support folks that are not sure when they need to ask for help or when you can't quite walk by their desk and, you know, kind of just strike up a chat with them. It's a cultural <laughs> shift. It really is. We've, I've learned a lot of, uh, about that um, working on an open source project. Yeah. And how to encourage uh, mentorship across the, uh, the committer uh, community. Okay. And have a have a place to have those discussions where everybody feels safe. Yeah. Um, and because not everybody in the DevOps world, and we have a DevOps tool, we have a lot of DevOps people who want to contribute, but they're not necessarily programmers. Mm. So we, there's a lot of, of education that we have to do. And I, I, there, it is a shift. It's definitely yeah. a shift. We have to really rethink our, our, our the human aspect of yeah. software. We just right. have to rethink it. Yeah. Yeah. We're being disrupted like we do everybody else, right? We're just, we're disruptors and now we've been disrupted in terms of how we manage our, our, our humans. Well, I think we're talking about the SREs and, and um, I've had some conversations um, with them and, and Nora, they said a lot of what you said, which is just their mental health has really struggled for the last yeah. couple of years and how hard it's been for them. And I think, they are a lot of those people are, you know, used to being in an environment where they can look over the wall or around the corner and yeah, or like, say, hey, are you, are you having a problem? Instead of like slacking, can you can you talk to me or can you pick up the phone or whatever? Yeah, that some of us can work. Like my job is, I'm great remote. I'm a cat herder. You know, I'm running around trying to catch up with all of you, but I do see where especially with, we do interns and all of our interns are typically at in, in person in the Boca office so yeah. that they can interact with our CEO and he can be engaging with them and walking down the hall. And yeah. it is, it is hard. It, it's, it's going to be interesting to see the impact that it has on um, college students in certain jobs, being able to where they can work. Cause it'll, yeah. it will be something depending on what they're doing. Well, so I, 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 I saw one solution to that. Um, <laughs> one, of, one of my nieces uh, who had gotten a, her first job during COVID 
uh, she ended up, they ended up giving her two monitors. Uh-huh. One she had on a permanent Zoom connection with who would have been her cube mate. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the other was her monitor. So she literally said she sat and talked to her cube mate all day, who was kind of her, 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 her mentor. Because she had been there for a while. She knew the ropes. And so she would just be chatting with her all day long. And she said it was kind of like I was sitting in a cubicle. Yeah, I could see that being helpful for like uh, someone new to their career, for sure. We've considered things like that, too. We have like water cooler Zoom sessions um, and we don't even use Zoom. What's the tool around? Have you heard of the tool around? Our engineers use that and they it's like an around session where you can just go... Um, spitball with each other if you and you don't have to join it but like they all like it because they get to have that camaraderie like they would be at you know kind of an office <laughs> our our bosses created the monthly jeopardy game for the whole the whole company yeah. we play jeopardy about different different things in the industry and we all have to study them up all week for four weeks and then we're in teams of five and we play jeopardy and it's hysterically yeah. funny except we have one one of our interns who graduated and is now um part of the company um if, if you're if you're familiar with john willis his son will will wins every time so we have <laughs> We're pulling him out and making him the host because he's, oh, he's so smart that he's killing all of us. So, but it's it's a fun way to team build when we yeah. can't all be together, and yeah. um, and we're all learning. So that's awesome too. But there's like definitely some creative. We we did a holiday party during COVID where I had food shipped to everybody's house, food and wine. They got to pick, and we all got on Zoom and had our holiday party on a zoom call with the food that had been delivered and, and the wine or whiskey, people got a choice. <laughs> I love that. And so, you know, there's a lot of creative, I'm one of those people that I have to look at the positive stuff that comes out of things. I can't just focus on this really sucked. Right. And yeah. all the devastation, but the, the positive things that it came out of it. And, and there's some of these things that are really fun that no one would have thought about doing had we not, and and the world was going to go virtual to some degree, right? Right. The companies were already designing that way, so I think it's really fun that some of these things popped up. Well, I have one more question I want to ask you before we get too far along here because we're getting close to being done. Angel investing. Tell me about that. I see that you're doing that. Yeah, yeah. So I've done a few angel investments. Um, I did one with uh, an HR tech company called Guide. Um, They provide a recruiting tool um, really for the company themselves. Uh, So to help the company and the candidate know which stage they're at in the recruiting process and to provide like a lot of transparency into it. It's really cool. And then the other companies I invested in are um, more companies that I'm like um, familiar with, like um, testing and performance related companies and SRE related companies. And so um, it was more, I wanted to do it with companies I thought I could make a difference in and like um, understood the problem space well. And it's a lot to be a CEO of of a new company. And there's, I think, you know, there were a lot of things I ran into that I would love to be able to help other people on as well. So, um, yeah, it's just a, it's kind of a fun opportunity to talk to other CEOs and other people trying to really make something happen as well. 
That's so great. Giving back is so amazing. Some people, yeah. I, I would just think, would be so involved in starting their own company for you to split your brain off that way and be like, but I, I want to use, I want to help some people. That yeah, I, I'm very careful about it. Like there's, there's certainly like more companies I could do it with, but I, I want to make sure I'm also being cognizant of my time, but it's, uh, I feel like we really also help each other out sometimes too. It's, I think one thing it took me probably about a year to learn into my entrepreneurial journey was to make sure I'm making CEO friends too, because it's like a very unique thing you're going through as a founder. And even though you have a really great supportive network, it's hard to find folks that understand unless they're also going through the same thing. So it can, it's just really like we help each other a lot too. Wow. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Tracy, do you have any other good questions? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think this has been um, an amazing little journey here going through chaos engineering and all the yeah. way through the culture of having a remote office and angel investing. And Nora, it has been fabulous meeting you. Um, I am, I'm going to, I will probably reach, I need more CEO friends. It's a, yeah. I think, I think that tidbit of information was meant for me. You just didn't know it. <laughs> no. Yeah. Let's be friends. I would love yes. to. <laughs> it is super important. I've supported, I've supported senior executives over the years as part of my career. And that was one of the things I found is that they, they found it super useful and we don't think about that. We think, well, they're so smart and they're doing all this stuff. They, they're good. But yeah, you, you definitely, it's nice to have people in a community that you can reach out to and be like, did you run into this? Yeah. Or just you, other you, people you, are kind of like, yes, you're, you're, not, <laughs> you're not bananas. Like this is the thing that happened to me this morning. <laughs> <laughs> you're not bananas. Oh, we don't think you're bananas. We think Thank you're you. amazing. So, we thank do. you so much for being here. And um, we're just really glad we got the chance to to have this one-on-one, uh, -on -one, kind of one-on-one, two-on-one conversation with you. And um, we're really excited for what you're doing. And, and we're going to keep watching it and, and see what you come up with in the future. We're very excited. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciated being here with you too. Well, great. Thanks everybody for joining us for another episode of Tech Strong Women. We'll be back next next couple of weeks. So be sure and check in. Love to see you. Thanks a lot. Have a great day.